And just to be clear, that was the Hillary Duff version, right? Okay, I'm, I love it. I didn't know. I would have never guessed, honestly. Uh, welcome, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. My name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And, uh, we, you know, we opened in the pre-show, we were talking about platitudes. There were some great ones in the live chat, too, like uh, It's All in God's Hands. That was a good one from Andrew and Stormy. Yeah, good, right? Real cringy. Um, I, I, I was thinking about platitudes because I think platitudes are sort of a micro expression of Karl Marx's famous critique of religion. Uh, Karl, yeah, Karl, that Karl Marx, right? The, the, the socialism one. Uh, his, his critique of religion came, he, he lived in Germany uh, during the Industrial Revolution, and he saw how Christianity in particular was wielded as a tool by people who were wealthy, by people who were powerful, as a way to keep impoverished people in poverty, uh, to keep people who were oppressed in, uh, in oppression. And so he, he created this famous uh, image that I, that I hear all the time today. I mean, honestly, all the time. Uh, you've probably heard it, right? Uh, Marx famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Okay? And again, what he meant by that was that there is this, uh, there's this way of expressing the good news of Christianity that actually becomes harmful and oppressive to, uh, to the majority of people. And that is it's okay if you're suffering in this lifetime, right? If you don't have enough to get by, if you are, uh, you know, if you're not able to work, if you, if you don't have enough to get food, uh, if you are uh, living in a relationship like an employer-employee relationship or something like that, that's, that's wildly unjust, uh, just hang in there and, and keep, keep doing what you're doing and then when you die and go to heaven, you'll get a reward, right? So it's, it's keep suffering now so that later you'll get rewarded. And you can see, right, how if someone's a victim of injustice and they're told that, it could convince them to keep on uh, tolerating that kind of oppression for the hope of heaven later. Uh, Mark said it's like, you know, religion that does that is like a drug. And of course, uh, that, that, um, that maxim doesn't apply to the wealthy, right? To the, the, the politicians and the bosses and the people who are in power, the people who are uh, doing the exploiting and, and benefiting from the injustice, right? They're not the ones that have to just hang in there, right? They're, they're doing fine. Uh, and so, so Marx levied this critique against the kind of religion he saw being practiced all around him, Right? Uh, in, in his own country, in the countries around him. And in his particular case, it was, it was Christianity that was being used as this tool of repression. It's the same kind of logic that was used in the United States by slavers. Uh, you know, a lot of you know this, right? We, we've uh, read or we've seen the movies that uh, slavers uh, would actually edit Bibles before they gave them to the enslaved persons that they had captured. And so they took out things like the Exodus story, which is a story about God liberating slaves, right? And they're like, eh, skip that part, right? And they would make sure to leave in verses like slave obey your masters as though you're obeying the Lord, right? So, so that, so that the, the kind of Christianity that was being presented to the enslaved peoples of America was a uh, intentionally truncated one, one that left out all of the verses in Scripture about God liberating uh, the slaves and, and responding to the cries of the oppressed. And it left in only the verses 
that could be used to keep the powerful in power, to keep the slavers in control. And so the kind of Christianity, again, that, that enslaved Americans were presented with was hang in there. That's how we got a lot of the spirituals, right? That we're just singing, I know things are bad now, but one day I'll get to go to the, the sweet by and by. And again, I'm willing to bet that most of you, like me, are disgusted by that idea. They're disgusted by the, the thought of intentionally editing scripture in order to justify oppression. Uh, intentionally wielding Christianity as a way to gain power for yourself at the expense of other people. Like, I think most of us recognize that as an evil, as something that, uh, that, is, that is antichrist, right? And so as, as we're exploring today this question of our faith and what it looks like in the modern day, this is really the through line that's going to go through everything we talk about. Today's going to be one of those more, you know, we're going to be more like 30,000 feet and talking about some big ideas and stuff like that. But the through line through all of it is that there is a, there is a way of being religious, and we, we even see it in Christianity, that ignores suffering or tries to distance ourselves from suffering, or even justifies suffering, okay? And that kind of faithfulness is antichrist. And I say antichrist literally. It is, it is anti what we see in Jesus. It is the opposite of the example that we see in Jesus. In Jesus, we do not see a God who chose to be distant from our suffering, who chose to remove himself from our plight. Instead, we see the exact opposite. Throughout Scripture, we see a God who hears the cries of people who live in oppression, people who are suffered, and responds to them. And even as we'll see, as we'll see in the New Testament, a God who is particularly present among those who are suffering. And so, uh, as we worship today, as we pray together today, as we explore the Scriptures today, that's what I want to, want to invite you to keep in front of you, is that the God that we worship is not a God who ignores our suffering but is a God who hears our suffering and calls us to be a church that flocks to those who are oppressed and uh, powerless and to live in solidarity because that's where God is. That's where God is most present. So uh, we're going to begin by worshiping together today. Um, I do want to welcome all of you who are with us, our guests, uh, both folks who are in the building and folks who are online. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're in the building with us for the first couple times, uh, we're a weird church. We encourage you to be on your phones in church because we are a hybrid congregation. We have a lot of our congregation who is virtual with us, and so feel free to open your YouTube app and find Catalyst on there and get in there because um, that's where, you know, They'll make jokes about me during the sermon and stuff like that. And no, really, there's a lot of like good discussion and stuff. We will be receiving communion, obviously. So if you're at home, uh, make sure you go ahead and get some elements gathered if you're here. Hopefully, Sarah got you uh, one of our communion cups on the way in. If not, please feel free to go grab one. Um, but yeah, everything we're doing today is just about celebrating this God who comes to us in the midst of our pain and our suffering and is present to us and invites us to be present to one another. So uh, I'm going to invite you all to stand and begin worshiping with me. I'm going to hand it over to Nathan and his team, and we're going to be singing together about this God who, who is close to us. We are in the season of Epiphany, which is the season in the church year that follows Christmas. So, you know, sort of in the logic of the church calendar, we begin at Advent uh, anticipating, asking the question, uh, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to prepare for Jesus's arrival among us? And you know, we look back at Jesus's first coming. We anticipate Jesus's second coming, and we get to Christmas, where we celebrate that Jesus is among us, that He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
So then Epiphany says, what does that mean to say that God is with us? In a real practical sense. And what does it mean that when Jesus came to the world in the first place, he didn't come for a small select group of people. He came for everyone. You know, how do, how do we take seriously this claim that we made at Christmas of peace on earth and goodwill to all people, right? What, uh, I mean, that, that, those, that's a big claim. And so this year for Epiphany, our series is called Spark. And we've been looking at... Uh, the idea of faith that we're called to and, and what that really means and how that all connects to Jesus's presence among us. So we began by looking at uh, a couple of texts from the book of Isaiah that talk about a character we know as the servant, right? This, this sort of idealized follower of God that the prophet created as a way for us to uh, understand better what God's calling looks like on our own life. And then, of course, we saw how the servant is very much embodied in Jesus's ministry. And we saw again and again that the servant is someone who is not, is not uh, present to the world under his own power. He is not someone who is uh, strong and great and powerful. Uh, rather, the servant is someone who often voices experiences of weakness and failure and wondering whether or not they're really enough to accomplish God's tasks in the world. And yet, in spite of all of that, the servant is one who is constantly responding to God and saying yes to God. And it's, it's that, it's that posture of faithful responsiveness that makes the servant so compelling to the larger world. It's, it's, it's that posture of faithful responsiveness through which God works to the world. Uh, so today, for the next couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to take kind of a pivot, and we're going to ask, as we engage this larger world, you know, what is the character of our faithfulness? And uh, we're going to see, I think, something that's going to be challenging to some deeply embedded principles for a lot of us, and that is the idea that religion is actually something that's meant to be public, not private. Okay? Religion is meant to have a, a very uh, clear public presence. And I say that that runs counter for a lot of us because we live in a world where a lot of different people have a lot of different ideas about what it should look like for us to live together, right? Obviously, Democrats and Republicans have different ideas about what that should look like. Right? That's what we're all fighting about in Congress right now. But it's not just the bipartisan system that our politics have sort of devolved into, right? Uh, I mean, libertarians and leftists have very different ideas about what the good life looks like when we're all living together, right? Uh, capitalists and socialists have very different ideas about what, uh, what, how money should play a factor in the good life when we're all living together, right? All of these uh, are examples of ways of kind of spectra that we're on, and we, you know, we all kind of probably land in different places when it comes to trying to suss out, well, what does it look like when we live well together? Okay. Uh, ironically, though, for almost all of us, we have the sense that religion shouldn't play a part in that conversation, right? We have the sense, we've probably since the 1700s in Western culture, that religion is something that ought to remain in the private sphere, right? That your religious beliefs are great, but they should be between you and God. And, and they're not really something that belongs in public discourse. And to be fair, We've all seen why people would think that, right? We've all seen people who do religion in public in ways that are really gross and toxic and sometimes, frankly, evil. Okay? So, so we understand why there might be an overcorrection to say, well, just keep it to yourself. Okay? I, get, like, I get it. The problem is uh, you just can't find anywhere in Scripture 
that God's vision for human flourishing is a privatized thing. God has this radical idea that all humanity should be swept up in this good news. That because all humanity are God's children and are a part of God's good creation, then uh, God's vision for life is a fundamentally public one. And so I want to ask this morning if we can begin for the next couple of weeks to suss out some of the characteristics of this public faith. And to look at how, what does it mean for us to be a church who takes faith in public seriously uh, in a way that avoids the, the hurtful and harmful patterns that we've seen, you know? Uh, so to do that, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 today. Uh, if you want to turn there or click there or whatever with me. If you grab the Bible out of the back, this is on page 409. You can feel free to keep that Bible, by the way, if you want. Now, as you're turning or clicking over to Isaiah 409, or Isaiah chapter 9, sorry, uh, buckle up because I'm going to give you a little bit of, uh, of biblical history. And this is, this is uh, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about second Isaiah, right? The kind of student of Isaiah who lived several hundred years after the original prophet and wrote after the exile. Isaiah 9 is the OG Isaiah, okay, right? Isaiah 1.0, and he lived in an absolutely feral time. I mean, we're talking like Game of Thrones, okay? So here we go. Uh, let's get the timeline up there, Harry. All right, here we go. So uh, we're talking about the time when Israel and Judah were two separate nations, so they had already divided. So Israel was the nation in the north, Judah was the nation in the south. They're both very tiny nations surrounded by a bunch of other tiny nations. And the big global superpower at the time was the Assyrian Empire, okay, modern-day Iran. And the Assyrians, at the time of the prophet Isaiah, had devolved into their own civil war, okay, as, as empires often tend to do. And what that meant was that the Assyrian Empire's influence on the world was weakened, because instead of sending their armies out to conquer and enforce, they were busy, you know, fighting each other at home. And so this let some of the other countries around them start to think, ooh, maybe it's our time to, you know, flex a little bit and take a little bit of, take a little bit of land. Now, Judah and Israel, both of the nations that we would today call the people of God, right, they were staunch allies of the Assyrian Empire at this time. So even while Assyria was in a civil war, they were trying to remain loyal, and a bunch of these other smaller nations around them uh, decided to rise up in this sort of anti-Assyrian coalition, and that put Israel and Judah in their crosshairs, except they didn't have crosshairs because they hadn't invented gunpowder yet, right? But like, whatever, in their arrow hairs, whatever, right? They were, that made them targets, okay? Um, one of the nations was uh, the nation of Damascus, again, what, in my, what we would call modern-day Syria, right? Uh, and, and, and so they actually rose up and conquered Israel because Israel's longtime king, Jeroboam II, had recently died. And like after Jeroboam II died, his son ascended to the throne and he lasted like two months and then he got um, excused from the throne, we'll say it nicely, right? And someone else took over. It was, it was just all this political turmoil in Israel. And then that let Damascus and this anti-Assyrian coalition come in and conquer Israel. Okay? Now... Isaiah lived in Judah in the southern kingdom, and the nation of Judah was watching all of this happen, watching their main powerful ally basically start ignoring them because they were fighting their own civil war, watching their sister kingdom to the north fall into turmoil and get conquered by some of these other nations. And so there was a lot of anxiety about, are, are we going to be next? What's going to happen? Is there anyone left to defend us? And that's where this particular prophecy 
Isaiah chapter 9 comes in. Now, I want to read just the first verse with you, and we're going to read it out of the NLT. And if you have another version, you'll see this. The, the, the uh, Hebrew in Isaiah 9 chapter 1 is really tricky, and it's actually been mistranslated in a way that we end up missing uh, kind of what, what really is important about what's going on here. So I'm gonna, we're going to read with you kind of the, the main way it gets translated in some of our, our most popular Bible translations. And then I'm going I'm to show you a scholarly translation that really like, tries to get the Hebrew more accurately. And you'll, I think you'll, what you'll see is that what gets removed from a lot of our modern translations is the very political nature of what Isaiah is saying. Okay, so let's read verse one. This is, this is, how, this is how it's going to sound in most of your Bibles. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future. Okay, that's one of the phrases that gets mistranslated. Okay, there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Okay, so it sounds like this is a prophecy about the future, right? Um, yeah, things are bad right now, but one day it's going to be better, okay? Which, again, kind of classic prophecy language, right? Nothing surprising here. But I want to show you uh, kind of how scholars tend to translate this, and I think you'll notice that it's not really talking about a far-off future time. It's actually talking about something in the here and now, and it's talking about the political realities that none of us have any idea about because none of us are, as far as I know, uh, experts in ancient Near Eastern politics, right? So, so here we go. Surely there will be no gloom on her, which is Jerusalem, okay? That's the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom, for whom there has been anguish. Like the time that the former one, the former king, which is King uh, Hadianu of Damascus, treated contemptibly the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that's Israel when he conquered them, right? And the latter one, which is King Rezin of Damascus, treated harshly the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and the Galilee of the nations. Okay, so it's still sort of talking about how a good time is coming, but it's speaking specifically to the political reality that Judah was looking at, which is the fact that Israel had just been conquered by these Damascus kings uh, leading their anti-Assyrian coalition, right? Now, I just want, if you're like eyes are glazing over, good. Okay, because I just want you to feel how completely irrelevant to us any of this is, right? We could not care less who was king of Damascus at the time Isaiah was prophet. It literally has nothing to do with our lives, right? That's because what God is doing right here is deeply political. And I say deeply political because it, it mattered to the politics of Isaiah's day. So uh, it mattered to Isaiah as much as it doesn't matter to us right? It is so irrelevant to us because it was so relevant to Isaiah, right? And we are so far removed from his time and his place and his politics that anything that God said as a specific word that was good news to Isaiah and Isaiah's people would, of course, not matter to us, right? But again, I want, if, if you would, just marvel with me for a moment at how deeply political God's prophecy is, God actually cares a lot about the lived experience of God's people, exactly where they are, and exactly the specific kinds of anguish that they were experiencing. And something happened in the movement of God's spirit among God's people as a result of this very specific prophecy that God's people decided to keep it for thousands of years 
even though within a decade, 50 years, it had ceased to be meaningful in the same way, right? And now we have to have like a PhD to understand what he was even talking about. So the big takeaway from all of that nonsense I just said, right, is that God's good news is deeply political. And by deeply political, I mean it matters to our lived reality. It, it, it matters to our polis, to our people, to our way of living publicly together. Okay? Now, I want to read the rest of this little bit in verses 2 through 5. And I just want you to hear what's happening here. Because um, most, so most scholars think that this particular prophecy is about the ascension of Hezekiah to the throne of Judah. Okay, so again, Israel's been conquered. Jeroboam died, his son got usurped, all that you know, nonsense. Damascus took it over. But in, in Judah, Hezekiah is ascending to the throne. And if, that, if that's, Hezekiah is the name that people make up when they fake quote the Old Testament, they're like, oh, in the book of Hezekiah, chapter three, right, that's okay. Uh, Hezekiah was like the second best king ever right under King David. I was like, King David's the best, Hezekiah, like, woo, second best, like 1.5 maybe, right? Like, right, just right there. Um, Hezekiah was a really, really, really important king in Judah's history. And his ascension to the throne brought about an incredible amount of security and stability during this time where the politics of the region were just a nightmare. Okay, so, so the, this this passage that was written about the ascension of Hezekiah to the throne, um, this is the, we actually read this at Christmas. I don't know if anyone has pinged that yet, right? But the, the imagery of light and darkness, it was like in, in a sea of chaos, there was this like island of calm that rose up and it was Hezekiah's ascension, okay? So you're gonna hear a lot of uh, dramatic language and it's because of that, right? It's because the, the people were in so much anguish and so much tension, that Hezekiah's ascension to the throne was a beacon for them. Okay, so let's, let's go ahead and read verses two through five. Isaiah says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And for those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and the people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. Now, uh, we, we, again, we read this passage at Christmas, uh, and we talked about the light and dark imagery and how that's been racialized in our day and how we just need to be careful with those images. And we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. But for now, I just want you to hang out with this very specific vision that God has for Hezekiah's rule. This very specific, uh, we would today call it public policy, right? That Hezekiah, the reason Hezekiah is good news, the reason his ascension to the throne is good news is specifically because he will bring justice and peace for those who are oppressed. He will end slavery. He will break the rod of oppression. He will put an end to war, right? He will bring peace and stability and flourishing specifically for those who are living in fear and who are being harmed by the current public policies of the day, right? That's why Hezekiah is good news. So what we see right here, 
uh, is, is a pattern that we see again and again and again throughout Scripture, is that when God moves and when God is active in human history, it's to liberate, and it's to raise up, and it's to bring peace. And so uh, I want to invite the worship team back up, because I want us to kind of pause here. We've been, again, we've just been dealing with some big ideas. This idea that, that the way God is present to us is among those who are oppressed, those who are downtrodden, those who are burdened by the world around us. That's where we find God at work again and again and again and again. And even in this, even in this passage, right, in, in the midst of global turmoil, what God announces first and foremost is liberation for the oppressed and, and liberation for those who have been enslaved. And so I want us to, I want us to celebrate that because I, uh, I don't know that we think about salvation in practical terms. You know, I think we spiritualize it to like save our souls from hell, which great is great, right? But I don't know that we talk about it in real world terms, like liberating, uh, liberating from the things that dehumanize us and harm us in, in here and now. So I think that's what we're singing about. I think that's what we're celebrating. So if you would stand with me, I want to pass it back over to the worship team. So uh, when we say that God is the one who comes to the oppressed or is, is the one who moves to liberate, um, I, I mean, this is true, but I, I'm afraid it can also uh, be something we say so often that it, that it becomes trite, right? That, that God is on the side of the oppressed, that God is for uh, the, the disenfranchised and the marginalized. And so I wanted to ask, uh, again, for this week and, and really moving into it next week as well, uh, what does that look like in the here and now today? Because again, what you find happening with a, a lot is theologians and pastors will just do the widow and orphans, right? So, uh, you know, God is for the widow and the orphans. James in the New Testament even says, you know, true religion that honors God is first and foremost caring for the widows and the orphans, right? And so I think, again, we take the, the letter of the word rather than the spirit of it. And, we, and again, not that widows and orphans don't deserve love and care, but the reason they get singled out in the scriptures is because in a patriarchal world, uh, one that, that is literally, the, you know, the, even the legal system and the politics are, are, are all explicitly patriarchal. Widows and orphans are those who are excluded from the legal system, right? They don't have a patriarch to whom they are attached who can advocate for them. And so God is saying, in, in, in the world that you live in, these are the cracks that exist in the system that you have. And so look there first, because that's where the, the most marginalized people are going to be, right? The ones who have no recourse and, and that's who you need to, to watch for. Um, now, you know, today, today we have a different system and it has different kinds of cracks. And so uh, I have been formed a lot by a theologian named James Cone. He's often known as the father of black liberation theology. And uh, probably his most famous book uh, is a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, where he talks about the experience of black and indigenous uh, people in America and uh, the reality that, that they live in and what it looks like to do theology from that perspective, which is obvious, I don't know if you can tell, but very different from mine, right? And uh, it, it's actually a really, um, it's been really transformative for me. And so as, as I was working through 
uh, the scripture for today as we're working through Isaiah 9 and this prophecy about Hezekiah coming to bring not just stability to Judah, but also uh, specifically peace and liberation for those who were marginalized, who were crushed under the boots of Assyria and, the, and that anti-Assyrian coalition and, and you know, left orphaned by the wars and, and all of that. Uh, I kept coming back again and again and again to Dr. Cohn's work because I think he is, he writes with such clarity about uh, what it looks like for the church today to live in solidarity with those on the margins of our culture today. And so I want, uh, sort of at the end of our time together today, I want to read a couple of uh, passages from the cross and the lynching tree where he really works through what it looks like to identify Jesus on the margins and in the cracks of American culture today. Uh, so uh, here, here is uh, this first bit of the passage is where Cohn really goes hard at that sort of opiate religion that we talked about at the beginning, right? Um, at, at those who would use Christianity as a way to justify oppression rather than to, to combat oppression, right? And, and you'll hear him actually even sort of take that language of the opiate and, and use it for his own purposes here. So here's what he says. Uh, Without concrete signs of divine presence in the lives of the poor, the gospel becomes simply an opiate. Rather than liberating the powerless from humiliation and suffering, the gospel becomes a drug that helps them to adjust to this world by looking for pie in the sky. Now, from there, Cohn goes on to look specifically at the cross. And he says, so if we are to understand the gospel as something that is truly liberating for the poor and for the oppressed, how does the cross factor into that, right? How does, how does the cross as the central symbol of our faith, as the place where we say that we come to know God most fully in the crucifixion of Jesus, how, what does that mean in this context, right? So he says, we cannot find liberating joy in the cross by spiritualizing it, by taking away its message of justice in the midst of powerlessness, suffering, and death. The cross as a locus of divine revelation, right, as the very place that shows us who God is, is not good news for the powerful, for those who are comfortable with the way things are, or for anyone whose understanding of religion is aligned with power. And again, we can look back to Jesus' own story, right? The cross was not good news for Pilate or for the Romans who crucified him or for the leaders in Jerusalem who collaborated with the Romans to have him crucified, right? The the cross was not good news for the, the pagan Romans or for the Jewish people whose religion was such that it led them to crucify God, right? It was good news for everyone else. And so Cohn says the same thing here. And so now he, he moves again out of the world of Jesus's time into the world of our own time. And he says, every time a white mob lynched a black person, they lynched Jesus. The lynching tree is the cross in America. And when American Christians realize they can meet Jesus only in the crucified bodies in our midst, they will encounter the real scandal of the cross. Salvation is revealed in the cross of the condemned criminal Jesus. And humanity's salvation is available only through our solidarity with the crucified people in our midst. Cohn was adamant that if we truly want to find Jesus, we find him among the most marginalized in our culture. 
Because that's where God has always arrived when God has come to us. That's where God is always present when God is among us. And so if we want to be a church that truly is active where Jesus is active, that means we have to be a church uh, for the margins. And we have to be, and again, we talk about this a lot at Catalyst, so I don't want to belabor this point, but not in like a paternalistic way, like not in a, not in like a white savior-y way where we're like, we're like vacationing at the margins to get some pictures for our social media and then coming back to our non-marginal lives. Right? But in a way where we truly live in solidarity, where, where we learn from them, where, where they become us, where, where it becomes difficult for us to even talk about us and them, because it just becomes we. Because we are truly living the life of Jesus. Now, I know that that's a lot, but I told you this is going to be a couple of weeks kind of a thing. And again, for me, it's, it's been way more than a couple of weeks of kind of asking, what does it look like to be this kind of a church, right? Uh... But I, I want to move us towards a time of reflection and response because we're going to pick this up again next week. And I'd like to, uh, I know we don't usually do two-part sermons with cliffhangers, right? Um, but we're going to kind of do that this week. And I'm going to say, I want, I want to send us out into the week, into our, into our small groups, into our, just our, our conversations and our households. And I, I just want us to have this kind of big picture. And then the questions of like, but where do we do that? How do we do that? What does that look like, Right. Um, I, because I, I do believe that this is where the Spirit is leading Catalyst. And so I want us as a congregation to begin to be able to answer those questions together um, rather than, you know, me coming down the mountain like Moses with some tablets for you, right? So, uh, so I want to lead us into a time of response and reflection. And in this time of response and reflection, as we move towards the communion table, uh, I want to invite you to just be okay not knowing how to answer these questions yet and being okay with just asking them in faith. Uh, because I think when we do that, that's when we make ourselves available for the surprising answers that the Spirit gives to us. So uh, we're going to come to the communion table, the same table that Jesus shared with his disciples the night before he was killed, the same table that Jesus invites us to. Uh, and, and before we do that, we're going to do this prayer of examine where I'm going to ask you to consider uh, what your relationship with the margins look like. You know, whether you stay as far away as possible, whether that's already where you live, whether it's something in between. And uh, ask what, uh, again, just kind of try to discern what, uh, what God is calling you to and what God is calling us to. And then after we've gone through these questions, I'll pray for all of us together and then we'll receive communion. So here's the first question I want you to consider. Where has God invited me to be awake to those on the margins in the last few weeks? Are there are times that you've really sensed God just drawing you, your attention, your time, your energy, your presence. Now, how have I been tempted to ignore those on the margins in the last weeks?
and the week ahead, how might I be tempted to ignore those on the margins? And finally, how can I follow Jesus to the margins in this next week? What does it look like for me to respond to God in faith? together. God, you have gathered us this morning to remind us that uh, we know you because of your movement to liberate and to save, your movement to rescue. And we confess we are uh, often tempted to spiritualize that language, to privatize it, and to make it something that is safe and that can accommodate the world that we live in. And yet you have shown us that uh, that's never been your intent. That you, you intend to remake the world, to create a revolution that restores dignity and honor to every human life. As we continue to be sensitive to how you call us to that, we pray that you would continue to speak to us, to guide us, and to show us what that looks like. As we come to your table today, we bring our, our confusion, our anxieties, our fears, and we offer them to you in faith, and we pray that you would, uh, in return, as we receive these elements, make them a spiritual food for us, that by receiving your meal together, we might also be a people who follows you everywhere you are and who knows how to seek you out the margins, among the vulnerable, specifically and primarily among those who fall through the cracks. Because your kingdom is that upside-down kingdom. It's the one that doesn't make sense to the powers of this world. And that's who we want to be. We want to be a church that follows you. And so we come to your table today and we offer these prayers now in the name of your son, Jesus. The night Jesus was betrayed, he shared this meal with his disciples. And during that meal, he broke bread and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it and remember me. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. Uh, now, as you're going, I know that this is a, uh, a big and difficult piece of our faith to wrestle with. Uh, at least I'm speaking for myself, it's been a multi-year journey for me trying to, to figure out what it looks like to, 
to be a church that really follows Jesus uh, to the margins and, and, and lives in solidarity there. And so uh, I just want to say a couple of things as we're leaving. One is that it's okay if you feel unsettled right now. Uh, that, that's probably good. That's probably uh, an okay place to be. It doesn't mean that you're in over your head. It doesn't mean that you're, conf- I, I mean, you're confused, but in a good way, right? Uh, it's okay if you're confused. Uh, I want to remind you that where we started with this was with the servant looking at the calling that was in front of them and saying, I, this might be too big for me. Uh, and saying, yeah, that actually it is too big for us. That's, that's because it comes from God. And if it was not something that we needed God's help with, then it wouldn't be from God. And so uh, the corollary to that is if I were to give you any kind of an assignment this week, it would just be um, to spend some time with this. Now, I know some of you are internal processors and uh, you need time to just kind of sit and think with this and work through it. So you have the text, take the discussion guide, you can do that internally. If you're like me, you're more of a verbal processor. You need to, Ooh, was that me? Must have been, okay. Um, uh, you, need, you need to talk this out and say a bunch of dumb stuff out loud before you kind of get to a halfway smart thing. That's fine. That's what I do. And so uh, that's what our C groups are for. Um, if you're not in a small group yet and you still want to do that, uh, try to grab someone else from the congregation and get a cup of coffee or, you know, get on a phone call or something. But just spend some time in a space where you can really talk about these ideas and wrestle with them. Because again, we're going to be leaning on them pretty heavily again next week. Uh, because this is, this is what it looks like for us to take God's call seriously as a church. Um, and I, I know that we have a lot of people in our congregation that uh, have been on this journey for a while. And so I think that we're moving into a space where uh, we're ready to start um, not only asking those hard questions, but, but dreaming up some answers and figuring out kind of what some next steps are. So I think this is an exciting space for us to be. Hope you feel excited about it as well. And, uh, and in all of that, and, and sort of as, as by way of dismissing, I guess I'll go ahead and invite you to stand for the blessing um, because I think what's important for us to remember, and this is where, I, again, I want to send you with this as a blessing. Uh, so I'll just, I'll just do it all formal-like, right? I'll say, so Catalyst, as you're going, uh, would you go knowing that, that, that God is always with us and always calling us? Uh, and if we will be faithful, God will always lead us to the spaces where God is at work. And that can be scary. That can be um, something that is pushing us way out of our comfort zone. But we're going there with God, and God has already prepared good work for us to do. And so as you go, would you go knowing that there's nowhere that you can go that God is not already present? And that if you will be faithful to follow God's call, uh, God will be faithful to do infinitely more than any of us could ask or imagine. Uh, So let's make this year one where we do some really uh, impossible things together in God's power. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we will see you next week.